two readings this morning. The first is from Genesis chapter 3 verses 14 to 24. You'll find that on page 3 of the Blue Church Bibles and the readings will be on the screen behind me. Genesis 3 verses 14 to 24. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return." Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove out the man, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. The second reading is from Romans 8, verses 18 to 25. You'll find that on page 1133. Romans 8, verses 18 to 25. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to the sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have... We wait for it patiently. If I could get you to uh, flick back in your Bibles to Genesis 3, that would be great. And uh, there's also an outline in the leaflet. I'll just pray as we begin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your great kindness to us and your Son. And Father, we pray that as we come to listen to your word now, uh, you'll help us to understand... Uh, the nature of living in a world under your authority, but a world that is such a mixture of different things. 
that you'll speak to our minds and hearts about what it means for us to trust you and to trust in your good eternal purposes for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I don't need to tell you that the world is an extraordinary mixture of different things. So I've been driving up here to Mount Barker in recent weeks, and it, it's a lovely part of the world up here. Very green, is sort of country-ish, but you've got all, all you need. You know, Harvey Normans is up here. What more could you ask for? You know, like it's, there, there's so much to like about living in this world. But you, you only need to tune into the news each day to work out that the place is such a strange mixture of different things. Um, when I uh, look at the news of the night, I see some of the troubles in uh, Turkey, Syria, that sort of warfare, the ongoing uh, problems that are occurring in Hong Kong. I hear about famine in a place in Africa, uh, and on and on and on it goes. You know, a plane crash here with hundreds of people being killed, and the whole thing can actually feel quite depressing. Of course, there's always the light moments, the positive moments. Uh, I hear also about the scientific breakthroughs that are happening in relation to Alzheimer's treatment or prostate cancer or a number of other areas, and so there's that sort of balance that's occurring. Uh, But in the scheme of things, uh, there's a a heavy weight that you often feel at the end of a news cycle, which is why they always finish with, you know, those happy good news stories? uh, Suddenly we go from gloom, doom, destruction, a bit of scientific breakthrough, to the Adelaide Zoo. Right? And we focus on the pandas. You know, will this be the year when Wooney or Fung Fung or whatever their names are finally have a baby? You know, like it's been going on forever. And I know they live to be about a thousand, but you know, like it sort of, we, we never seem to get there. And that's sort of the way in which the news cycle seems to, seems to work. But what it does do is it reinforces for us the nature of the world being such a, a mixture, a mixture of joy and suffering of good and of evil, uh, the, the, the heartache, and yet the highlights. It, it just is a strange mixture of different things. And of course, for those who have confidence in God's word or the authority of God in this world, a question forms in your head. And the question runs something like this. Why does a good God allow pain and evil? Why would that be the case? Because surely if he was good, he'd want to stop it. And surely if he was powerful, he would do something about it. And most of us, I think, from time to time, have asked that question, either theoretically or when it comes to the crunch in a particular situation in our lives. Why God? When we come to these early chapters of Genesis... What we get is this insight into a good world that's infected by evil and suffering. Uh, Particularly chapter 3 gives us very deep insights into why it is this way. The first half of chapter 3 we looked at particularly last week, Adam and Eve sin. They turn their backs on God. They want to be self-determining and that creates a real barrier between them and the living Lord. But this week, as we move into the second half of the chapter, we see that God passes judgment on the world. It's not only on Adam and Eve, but actually on all creation. And when you heard that read, what you heard was the fact that God pronounces curses on this world. Now, that inevitably makes you feel, I think, slightly uncomfortable. 
because I get the fact that when I do something wrong, I should have consequences for it. You know, I murder someone, I should be prosecuted and punished for that crime. That's a totally appropriate thing. But of course, here we have a situation where uh, we're hearing about curses on the created order. See, when you have a flood or an earthquake or a famine, it's not someone's particular sin that's caused that to happen, but it is part of a world that sits under the consequence of the judgment of God. Genesis 3 uh, gives us that clear picture of a world that sits under God's judgment. And we need to wrestle with that to understand what's going on here. So let's dive in together. If you haven't got your Bible open at Genesis 3, that'll be a really helpful thing to do. We start off and we see the way in which um, sin, first half of the chapter, leads to a breakdown in relationships and creation. So firstly, from verse 14 on, God announces the consequences of sin or curses uh, for different ones. And as we read this, remember, it's easy to think this is ancient history or something that's removed from us. Uh, But in fact, remember, at chapter 2, verse 4, through to the end of chapter 4, what we have is uh, a scene of the heavens and the earth. That is, it's, it's a state of reality for all creation, Uh, for the extent of time, more comprehensive than just what we've got here. So firstly, God speaks to the serpent, verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, "Uh, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Of course, as the uh, Bible unfolds, the serpent's identified as Satan, uh, a created being who opposes God and deceives human beings. C.S. Lewis, um, well-known Christian author, he he wrote a novel called Screwtape Letters. Now, in it, this is a book about... um, uh, letters from a senior devil training up junior devils. Right, That's the picture in the book. And in it, uh, what we have is one letter where the senior devil is talking to the junior devil and says to him, one of the key things for us to do as um, evil ones, as um, demons, is to make sure people do not believe in us because it makes our job much easier. Right? Just get people to think that Satan doesn't exist and his minions don't exist and our job is half done. Of course, we live in a world that swallowed the lie that God doesn't exist. Or if he does, he has a policy of Uh, non-interference. That's basically the way the world operates in terms of their thinking about God. And of course, if you dismiss God, inevitably what you'll do is dismiss Satan as well. Uh, If you don't believe in God, you certainly won't believe in his is uh, polar uh, when it comes to thinking about the nature of our world. In John's Gospel, John chapter 8, Jesus is speaking to religious leaders and he talks to them because they're not believing in him. Listen to the way he describes them. John chapter 8, verse 44. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's 
desires. They're very strong words, aren't they? Right? You, your father is Satan and you're serving him. Now, step back from that. Think about some people you know, good living people, lovely people, but people who don't believe in God, who are friends of yours. How do you feel about them being referred to as children of the devil? Seem a bit strong? Can I, can I ask you what you think is the most grievous thing we can possibly do when it comes to sin? Surely it must be turning your back on God and rejecting him. Surely that, that's got to be at the, the heart of what is the most serious thing, denying God himself. And if you do that, of course, the only other alternative is, he, is that you serve Satan himself. The serpent. God turns his attention now to Adam and Eve. Verse 16. To the woman he said, I'll make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labour, you'll give birth to your children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Uh, This week, Sue and I uh, welcomed into the world our fifth grandchild, Peter. He was born on Wednesday, and he was 4.18 kilos, which in the old terms, I can't remember what that is, but uh, it's nine pounds and roughly three ounces, which is a decent size, especially when his mother's only about five foot nothing. Right? And, uh, but his father, our son, David, when he was born, he was 11 pounds, 15 ounces, right? Ooh, <laughs> right? Yeah, natural birth, right? You get what's being said here? I'll make your pains in childbearing very severe, right? You understand that's the way it works. But what does this last sentence mean? Your desire will be for your husband but he will rule over you. It could just be saying there's an ongoing desire for a man despite his mistreatment of woman. It might just be as simple as that. But I suspect there's more to it. Um, If you look over to chapter 4, verse 7, chapter 4, verse 7 of uh, Genesis, what you see there is um, the situation with Cain and Abel. And the same word, the same word desire, is used of Cain in relation to his brother. So the Lord God said to Cain, sin is crouching at the door and it desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Uh, Same word and I think the same sense of how it's being used. So the picture back in chapter 3 is a picture of a wife trying to control her husband while he tries to exert his own authority or power over his wife. And do you understand what's being said here? It probably doesn't matter which interpretation you take, although they seem consistent to use the word uh, the same way in both chapters. But instead of a beautiful complementarity and partnership and unity and oneness that you read about in Genesis chapter 2, a relationship that's marked by trust and harmony, 
where the differences are good and work together to achieve the service of God in this world, where it's all positive instead. What we're being told is there is mistrust, there is selfishness, there's a jockeying for power and authority that destroys. See, we're talking about the the corruption of what was meant to be good in that relationship and the battle of the sexes that we still see being worked out today. You still have the words thrown around, toxic masculinity. Uh, You still have um, issues to do with the women's movement, assertion of rights. You still have that sense of, I need to protect and push forward with my agenda rather than complementarity designed by God where there's peaceful cooperation that's for the good of everyone and the glory of God. See? goes to the heart of that issue. We move on, verses 17 to 19, and we see the way in which all of creation, our work, everything to do with the created order is affected. Uh, Verse 17. To Adam he said, Because you've listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you'll eat food from it all the days of your life. It'll produce thorns and thistles for you, and you'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken. Dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now, I am no expert gardener. I was sitting out the backyard with my brother-in-law a little while ago, and he looked at our back fence, which is about, we've got a big backyard, and he said, have you got a fig tree growing on your back fence? And I said, no, we don't have a fig tree. He said, it looks like a fig tree. I said, no, we don't have a fig tree. He went out the back, came back with some of the fruit off this tree and said, you do have a fig tree, right? <laughs> I said, well, what do you know? I didn't realise we had one of those. And what had happened was the neighbours... Um, a fig tree had dropped stuff over the fence and grown a fig tree for me, which was very good. And I, hadn't, I just thought it was a weed, actually, but it's a fig tree. You, know? you get a good insight into my gardening capacity at this point. Right? <laughs> uh, if you want some expert advice on growing figs, I'm your man. Right? Um, let me say, I know how to grow every weed known to mankind. Right? I have that sort of expertise. And when you get that, you understand that God has actually brought judgment on the created order. Not just people, but sin affects our world. Not just our capacity to garden, but earthquakes and floods. There's a frustration built into the very created order of our existence in this world. It extends to our work. It means that even if you have the job of your dreams, there are still problems. Uh, I, I worked as a lawyer for a few years. I loved that work. But there were still frustrations. You're not going to believe this. I had clients who didn't take my advice. And I found that really frustrating. You know? um, we had computer systems that broke down. Uh, we had people. Obviously, there were problems. You know? like it's, it's just the nature. Every job has struggles, even if it was just the exhaustion of too much work that couldn't be done. Uh, The whole of creation is affected. And then we see that there is a banishment from the presence of God in verses 22 to 24. Let me just read it, verses 22 of chapter 3. 
The Lord God said, The man's now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword to flash back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. To us, I think death is one of the most natural things in our world. We all die. Uh, We all know that that is the reality. Yet at another level, you also know that it's unnatural. And death causes enormous grief and heartache and trouble. Remember reading an interview that was done with a concert pianist. And in it, this, um, this concert pianist was asked about her views on death, how she felt about it as she aged. She said, when I was younger, I didn't really think about it much. And it, you know, it was fine. He said, but as I've gotten older, I found it just um, oh, niggled away at me more and more. She said, I think it's a bit like when you go to a concert. Now, for me, uh, my ear is so finely tuned that I can pick up when something's not tuned in properly. And he said, death is like going to a concert where early on you hear a note, a wrong note being hit on a piano. Just occasionally that note keeps on getting hit because it's out of tune. The longer that concert goes for, the more irritated and frustrated I get with the fact that it's not tuned up properly. He said, death has been like that for me. The longer I live, the more it just eats away and irks and unsettles me. Here at the end of Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden. They're cut off from the tree of life, the tree that sustains their existence. Back in chapter 2, verse 7, we're informed that God has created out of the dust of the earth And now God says to Adam, to dust, you will return. Death is now a reality. It's why most funeral services, you hear that pronouncement, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. This is the point that's being made. Back in chapter 2, verse 17, uh, there was the warning that if they were to disobey God, it would lead to death. And here it is, cut off from God, cut off from the tree of life, both spiritual and physical death is what's on view. This is the narrative of the consequence of turning back on God. You see, why is the world like it is? It's a strange mixture of beauty and destruction, of joy and of heartache, of life and of death. See, sin just uh, it corrupts everything. I don't know if you've ever been into a house when there's been a fire. I remember going to a house uh, one time when there'd been a fire confined to a lounge room area of the house. But as I went through the whole house, the smoke had gotten into everything. Every little corner, every little crevice, every carpet, every bit of clothing, and you just couldn't get rid of it. The fire had been in one location, but the consequences just spread. 
And that's the picture here in Genesis chapter 3 of the corrupting influence of sin in our world for all eternity. Now, why is it so? Well, certainly because of us. That is, we turn our back on God and we try and run things our own way. And as a result, our lives do unhinge. There is humanity. Every single one of us knows the experience of anger or impatience or unfaithfulness or a lack of integrity when it comes to those we love. Sin just gets in. But I also want to say it's because of God that our world is like it is. You can't read the Bible without appreciating this. In Romans chapter 8, verse 20, we heard it read just a few minutes ago. It's a passage that in many ways reflects on this Genesis 3 experience. Listen to what it says in verse 20 of Romans 8. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. By the will of the one who subjected it. Who is the one who subjected it? Whose will? Friends, it is, it is God's will. You see, ultimately God has made this world a futile place to live in. And if we don't get our heads around this, we'll always be completely puzzled as to why our world is such a strange mixture. Romans 8 verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we groan along with this world. I mentioned the Christian author C.S. Lewis in uh, his book The Problem of Pain. Uh, he says that the, the, the problems in our world, the, the frustration, the futility, um, the natural disorder that we face, he said it's, it's actually a mercy of God that it exists. He says it's like God's megaphone or loudspeaker to rouse a deaf world. The problems in our world cry out to the whole of creation. Things are not the way they're meant to be. You intuitively know that's the case. And God in his kindness has made it the case. It's part of his grace to alert us to a serious problem. That we're living under his judgment and it's only he that can resolve it. Romans chapter 8, what we're told is that God has subjected the world to futility, but I hope you picked up what followed in hope. Futility in hope. When you get to Genesis chapter 3, by the end, we've got a world that's out of touch with the creator God. And it's a really sad picture. But I want to say that Genesis 3 is not the end of the story because it's not the end of the Bible. It's not the end of God's purposes. Here in Genesis 3, we have the clear indication that God hasn't given up on his plans or his promises. Notice in Genesis 3, verse 15, God speaking to the serpent says, 
I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. It's the hope that there's a day coming when Satan will be utterly destroyed. Utterly destroyed. In Genesis 3 verse 24, we get this really strange end to the chapter. Did you find yourself puzzling over it? Let me remind you. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. You see, to prevent humans from preserving their lives independently of God for all eternity, they're blocked in terms of their access to the tree of life. Now, these cherubim, um, they're angelic guards. They're the ones that prevent the access uh, to this tree. They come up again from time to time throughout the scriptures. I want to take you to another place where they're mentioned. It's 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 23. 1 Kings 6, verse 23. You don't need to look it up. Just um, listen as I explain. Uh, here in 1 Kings 6, what we have is a description of the temple that Solomon's building. And as part of this description, uh, by the time you get into this part of 1 Kings 6, there's a description of the Holy of Holies. Now, that was the sort of inner sanctum of the temple where the annual sacrifice of atonement was made for the people's sins. Right? That, it was critical for people to be made right with God. Verse 23 of 1 Kings 6 reads this way. For the inner sanctuary, he, that is Solomon, made a pair of cherubim out of olive wood, each ten cubits high. Cherubim. Now, the image is really clear. You see, the way back to God, the way back to life, is past these cherubim. And the only way back is by sacrifice. Sacrifice in the Holy of Holies, the atonement for the people's sin. And ultimately, as you see the Bible unfolding, it's the seed of the promise in Genesis 3 that God completes. That is, God himself provides a way back to himself, ultimately through the sacrifice of his own son for the sins of all people for all time, so that we might be forgiven. This is the gateway back to life itself and the means by which Satan is crushed. Friends, we we live in a world that's awash with tears and pain and death and uncertainty and strain. Uh, They're the labour pains of a world that's out of touch, out of step with its creator. And I know... uh, So many of you know this experience and are going through this experience right now in a variety of ways. Uh, Some of you know that um, about a year ago, Sue was diagnosed with lymphoma. Uh, You know, we weren't particularly expecting that. Uh, But it is, that sort of sickness is just part of living in a fallen world. Uh, Many of you know the nature of sickness and the strain of that. Some of the congregation know the pain of death, recent death, 
of people they love. You know that that's the nature of the world in which we live. But friends, here is the critical thing to remember. God in his grace has provided a way back, access to life and relationship with him. And it's through the death of his son. That's the promise that God has fulfilled because in Jesus there's forgiveness. The promise of resurrection from the dead and the guarantee of life that will not be tainted by these curses back in Genesis chapter 3. I want to finish off by reading from Revelation 22. It's a, a picture that captures some of this language and the promises of God. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. Friends, this is a world of struggle. But that is not the last word. We are secure, and our future is secure in the hope and promises that we have in Jesus. And in the ups and downs of life, he is the one that we must trust. He is the one we must keep looking to. Because he is the one who has defeated the evil one and he is the, the one who gives us hope and confidence and security. Uh, let me pray for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are a God who is both loving and powerful. Uh, we don't pretend to understand uh, some of that, the struggles and things that are going on in our world and often we don't even get why things are going on in their own lives or extended relationships. But Father, we thank you for this, this insight into the nature of the world in which we live, a world that's out of step with you. And Father, we thank you that in your mercy you've not let us just drift on uh, for an eternity separated from you, but you've intervened to draw us back to yourself. Uh, Father, we pray that um, in the midst of our struggles, we will look to you. We will look for the forgiveness we have in Christ. We will look for the hope and the promise that you give us in the Lord Jesus Christ and that that will be our foundation and security and basis uh, for both living now and as we press forward in serving you in this world and the world to come. Our Father, we commend ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.